Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Linda Greenhouse, lecturer at Yale Law School and a columnist and former Supreme Court reporter for the New York Times. She spoke about the current polarization of the court, the political battle over the nomination of Merrick Garland, and the legacy of the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. So welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. It's just a delight. I've followed Linda Greenhouse's work for years uh, to have Linda Greenhouse with us. She's the Knight Distinguished Journalist in Residence and the Joseph Goldstein Lecturer in Law at Yale Law School. Uh, I said, how's the gig? And she said, well, I've been there long enough now that it's no longer a gig. Uh, so, uh, and they, of course, that before that, of course, was the Supreme Court uh, reporter correspondent for the New York Times and uh, indispensable uh, for those of us that uh, were interested in the court and wanted to know not only about the significant cases, but uh, would tell us something actually about what was going on with the justices. And uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, also uh, received from the Sorenstein Center the Goldsmith Career Award uh, uh, for excellence in journalism. For which uh, I got a chair. Yeah. An actual right. chair. An actual right. chair, right. <laughs> we no longer give the chair, right? but we still give the certificate, but it's the chair. I, I sit in that chair quite often. <laughs> Linda, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here, and as I told Tom, I followed his work um, and have cited it uh, currently rather extensively in uh, the Massey lectures that I gave at Harvard this last fall, a kind of autobiographical take on journalism, and I'm working to turn those into a book, and his work is very helpful in how to think about the current media environment. But that's not why I'm here. So I'm here to talk about the post-Scalia court. We have an example this very morning of what's going on in the post-Scalia court, and that the court handed down its first four to four tie vote, which disabled it from being able to decide a case. Uh, You know, when there's a tie at the court, it simply affirms without opinion the lower court judgment has no precedential value. This was a uh, case involving um, equal credit opportunity case involving the role of spouses. Uh, Not a case I follow very closely, but uh, it's a taste of things to come, I think. Um, The court is very closely divided on most of the things that most of the people in this room, including myself, care about. So uh, the fact that there are going to be eight justices for some indeterminate future um, is really going to shape outcomes. So I thought in my very few minutes of remarks, I would sort of pull back a little bit from the the current uh, conflict and, and sort of position the current court or let's assume the court as it was on the eve of Justice Scalia's death last month um, in a sort of historical context, because I think especially for students, for my students at Yale Law School, for younger people, uh, this is the only kind of court they've ever known, that is to say, deeply polarized. Uh, Four justices on one side, four justices on the other side, or there were, uh, and Justice Kennedy in the middle. And that's actually anomalous. That's not the way the Supreme Court has been 
in recent times. Uh, when I first started covering the court for the New York Times, it was the Burger Court. It was the 19, <coughs> late 1970s, early 1980s, and there was a cohort of justices in the middle. Potter Stewart, Byron White, Lewis Powell, uh, John Paul Stevens in his early career. Um, and, you know, anybody framing a case or arguing to the court had to assume that they were making an argument that had to get at least some of those people. It wasn't tailoring an argument to the one justice in the middle. So, you know, whether we'll ever in our polarized world, with the confirmation process obviously in total meltdown, ever return to that kind of court, I don't know. But I just want to point out that it's not, it's not usual. And, and what's extremely unusual, totally new in history, is the fact that in the Roberts Court, <coughs> it just so happens, it doesn't just so happen, the result of our politics is that um, every one of the justices on the liberal end of the spectrum was appointed by a Democratic president. Every one of the justices on the conservative side of the spectrum was appointed by a Republican president. That is not typical. That is really unusual. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower appointed Earl Warren and William Brennan, the two, let's say, most liberal justices of the second half of the 20th century. Uh, JFK appointed Byron White, who, although he was quite liberal on um, federal power and civil rights, was very conservative on the social issues. He dissented in Roe against Wade. He dissented in Miranda uh, and so on. So the, the public has been able to look at the court not as a reflection of our political polarization. It gave a different message than that. It gave a message that the court was about <coughs> law and not politics. And I'm deeply concerned as a citizen, as someone who cares about the court, as a close observer of the court, about the consequences of the politicization of the court, uh, specifically of the Roberts Court. I've written this, um, so I'm not saying anything I haven't said in print that uh, <coughs> I, I was concerned uh, earlier in this calendar year when the court was uh, seemed to be declaring war on the Obama administration, that the court, the Roberts court, was allowing itself to become a tool of, of partisan warfare. I'm referring specifically to what the court did in accepting the government's appeal in the United States against Texas. That's the immigration case. Um, the question is whether the president had the authority to issue the order deferring deportation of adults with uh, children who could not be deported under the other part of the plan. Um, and the court accepted the government's appeal, which is quite normal, uh, and then added to that grant of review, grant of certiorari, the question, the gratuitous question, as to whether uh, the president, in issuing this order, had violated the section of Article Two of the Constitution that requires the president to, quote, take care that the laws are faithfully executed, the take care clause. The court just upped and decided that they were going to transfer or, or translate a statutory case about the reach of the immigration laws and the procedures required under the Administrative Procedure Act, statutory case, into a major constitutional confrontation. And that said to me that the court was veering out of control in our political environment. So I think I'm going to stop there with that, those calm <laughs> remarks uh, and, uh, and invite your questions uh, because we're certainly at a moment 
uh, it's a great time to be a student of the court. I tell my students, you will be telling your children about this crazy year of 2016. Uh, you know, we don't know where it's going to lead, but we can all agree it's a crazy year. So, Linda, could you talk, I'd like you to talk a little bit about John Roberts, who um, cast two important votes around the Affordable Care Act, and, uh, and then a few days before <coughs> Scalia died, um, talked about the need to kind of get the politics somewhat out of the Supreme Court. Um, do you have any sense that, that Roberts could be any kind of a change agent on that court? Well, I mean, he's some, so John Roberts is someone who's been a student of the court his whole life. Of course, he clerked on the court, then he was in the Solicitor General's office, then he was a noted, famous advocate before the court, and I certainly think he cares about the court as much as anybody in this room does. Um, what the internal dynamic has been, I can't pretend to know uh, whether he has been a full... Uh, open-hearted participant in some of this recent activity or whether he was sort of dragged along by those to his right. Uh, what's quite interesting now, there seems to be in the post-Scalia era kind of a new normal emerging in that we have uh, six justices, including the chief justice, uh, looking in one direction. And we have uh, Justice Alito and Justice Thomas uh, off by themselves on the right-wing fringe. And um, it's happening in, the court hasn't done anything very high profile since Justice Scalia died. <coughs> but for instance, um, just yesterday, and here we are in Massachusetts, so maybe people know about this case, the Massachusetts stun gun case. So um, there was a case that uh, challenged the holding of the Massachusetts um, uh, High Court, uh, the Massachusetts SJC, uh, that a stun gun or like a taser um, is not the kind of weapon uh, that is protected by uh, the Second Amendment. And um, this appeal came up to the Supreme Court, and the court um, per curiam, that is to say, in an unsigned opinion, uh, six of the justices reversed the ruling of the Massachusetts court, very narrowly sent the case back and basically said, look again, you've, you've uh, too rigidly interpreted what we've said about the Second Amendment in the Heller case, so take another crack at this. Justice Alito and Justice Thomas wrote a separate opinion. The first opinion, the procuring, was four paragraphs long. They issued a 10-page opinion uh, basically um, saying uh, this holding of the Massachusetts court puts all of our lives in peril because we're not able to defend ourselves, and uh, just a screed. Uh, you know, when you look at this and you say, what, I mean, something's not right here. The, the norm of the court in its handling of its discretionary docket, which is almost its entire docket, what cases to take, uh, is, you know, just downplay everything. Don't wash your dirty linen in public. You're either granting a case, in which case you're going to decide it on the merits after full briefing and argument, or you're not taking a case, in which case you really don't have to say anything, or you're deciding something per curiam like this right off the conference list very 
narrowly. Um, but Justice Alito and Justice Thomas weren't satisfied with that. And they felt they had to um, enlighten us with this 10-page uh, screed about the you know, further reaches of the Second Amendment. So you know, it, what was interesting in answer to your question, Tom, is that Chief Justice Roberts did not sign that opinion. On the other hand, and I'm sure he didn't like that opinion. If he liked it, he would have signed it. Uh, on the other hand, doesn't have the power as Chief Justice to dissuade his colleagues to his right from issuing that opinion. So um, it's just hard for me to know exactly where he and his, I, I think, you know, very sound instincts about the welfare of the court fit into the current dynamic of the court. So questions. Students first again. Yeah, please. <coughs> uh, Linda, my name is Mitchell Alva. I'm a second year master's student at the Kennedy School. Um, the circumstances of Justice Scalia's successor nomination are obviously quite unique with uh, tipping the ideological balance of the Supreme Court. You mean, uh, you, you mean Merrick Garland? Merrick, yeah, right. his successor. Right. Um, tipping the ideological balance of last year of uh, presidency. But obviously, the politicization of the of nomination battles has been getting much worse. Justice Scalia, Justice Ginsburg were both almost unanimously confirmed. Uh, there's been battles waged at the circuit court levels now with the D.C. Superior Court, D.C. Circuit Court. Do you think that this changes the dynamic completely going forward for future Supreme Court battles? Can you ever envision, if you have a divided White House and Senate, a smooth confirmation <coughs> process uh, in, the, in the next three, four nominations that come before the Supreme Court? Is there going back? Is there going back? Well, of course, it's, it's, all this is related to what I said at the beginning, I mean, the extreme polarization, so, so that any seat now, any vacancy, makes a difference if there's somebody in the White House who's in a position to make that kind of appointment. So, uh, you know, circumstances being as they are, yeah, I think um, we're just, we're going to fall into a black hole of, of just nothing but politics all the way down. It's, um, it's very concerning, and the Republicans uh, tried very hard for the last eight years, you mentioned the circuit courts, um, to deprive uh, the Democrats of the ability to sort of have a bench develop uh, on those courts, people who would be in a position to be elevated uh, if, if the occasion arose. So um, I think we're, it, it all feeds on itself, the, the polarization of the court, the polarization of our politics, you know, where where one begins and the other ends, they're all, they're all merged together. Marilyn, please. Um, Linda, I'm Marilyn Thompson, I'm a Shorenstein Fellow. Uh, what do you see as the real chances that the court will address and perhaps overturn Citizens United? I don't think the court will overturn Citizens United. I think the court, uh, you mean a more liberal court, sometime in the indistinct future, um, can mitigate a chunk of the damage of Citizens United by simply uh, broadening the definition of corruption that Citizens United incorporated as the only acceptable rationale under the First Amendment for curbing the flow of money in politics. The definition that Justice Kennedy gave us in the majority opinion of Citizens United was basically uh, the only kind of corruption that uh, 
can be attacked is quid pro quo, quid pro quo corruption bribery. And we all know that corruption comes in many other forms. And uh, we know from our observed experience. So I don't see the court kind of turning tail on its view of the First Amendment, but what kind of rationale there would be within the framework of the First Amendment as they understand it uh, could be invoked for um, getting back into campaign finance, I, I, I think would be the, the more likely way to go. Oh, please. Um, hi. Um, I'm behind you. Uh, my name is Anarima Bargava. I'm a fellow at the Institute of Politics here, and I'm sorry about my voice. I, I actually have two questions. One is 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 about the stock you place in the personal relationships of the of the justices, and there's much made of the relationships between Justice Scalia and 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 Justice Ginsburg, and and certainly the ways in which Justice Scalia even took to welcoming Justice Kagan to the court. Uh, and I wanted to see how what your thoughts were on that. Uh, set of relationships in terms of trying to actually mitigate some of the polarization of the court. Um, it didn't always seem to make any much, much difference, but I wanted to see if you had a, a thought on that. Yeah, I don't think it really comes down to personal relations. <coughs> um, you know, I mean, certainly Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia were friends from their days as relatively young judges on the D.C. Circuit. But I think people have kind of embrace that notion of their friendship. I think we all kind of desperately want to believe that it's possible to overcome the kind of ideological polarization. Uh, you know, they're all grown-ups, and you can't really accomplish anything at the Supreme Court unless you can get four people to go along with you and make a majority. So unlike, say, Congress, where you can have a caucus or half a caucus or a quarter of a caucus that just wants to stand in a corner and hold his breath or whatever, that's not an effective way to be on the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, but I think, I think they all get along okay, but, um, but that doesn't get us anywhere, really, in terms of, uh, in terms of the output of, um, of, of what they do. So, um, <clears throat> if you look at the court composition for the last, over the last, recent decades, um, what's kind of noticeable <clears throat> is that um, there was a type of justice once upon a time that was on the court, but it's no longer there, and it's the politician who mm -hmm. was appointed to the court. Uh, do you think that's made a difference, that we have a court of lawyers and judges who pretty much with judicial experience, but often very little political background? Yes, I do think it's made a difference. I mean, the last politician, uh, former politician, was Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. <coughs> and she famously um, was, I mean, she was quite conservative for most of her tenure on the court, but she was somebody who believed in compromise. And, you know, in the legal academy, she was criticized for this, for not having a coherent judicial philosophy. But she had a philosophy, which was, let's try to find some common ground here. Um, and that seems to be lacking on the current court. You know, it's interesting to say the Warren Court, certainly highly effective in accomplishing its agenda, uh, had, at its height, had no members who had formerly been judges of any kind, right? 
uh, well, Justice Brennan w had been a state judge, so I, I remember that, had, had not formally been federal judges. Earl Warren himself had never been any kind of judge. Uh, and it was, and he was three-time governor of California. He had run on the national Republican ticket as Tom Dewey's vice president in 1948, um, a person of very broad political experience. Um, and he brought that to bear. Um, and I think the court would benefit from uh, people like that. But uh, that's really fallen away, I think, because um, mm. presidents who nominate and senates who used to confirm uh, want to see some kind of judicial record because they're confirming a judge. And, uh, you know, politicians say different things in different contexts and have a body of speeches and votes and so on. And I think that's now in our current culture regarded as um, kind of problematic. And I think that's unfortunate. Dan, please. Um, Linda, I'm Dan Kennedy. I'm a George Shorenstein Fellow this semester. Um, could you kind of help lead us through the weeds a little bit on the politics around the Garland nomination? I mean, you know, the, the Republicans contend that you don't do this in an election year, and I know that Joe Biden's words have been thrown in his face. Do, do you see the, re, the Republicans' refusal to take up his nomination as truly unprecedented, or is this something that has been overblown? It's truly unprecedented. The use of Joe Biden's um, hypothetical remarks uh, is totally cynical. You know, when Biden said, well, we hope, you know, we expect that President Bush won't uh, get a nominee through at the end of his term, there was no vacancy. He was just kind of talking off the top of his head. He didn't have the, you know, occasion to say, uh, we're not even going to meet with this person. We're not going to even open our doors to this distinguished, long-serving federal judge who just a few months ago many leading Republicans were praising as the very kind of nominee that they would hope but didn't expect that President Obama would, would send them. Um, it's totally cynical. It's totally playing to the base. Um, I mean, I was pretty shocked that Saturday afternoon when the word got out that Justice Scalia had died. The sun had not set before uh, Mitch McConnell said, uh, no matter who the president sends up, we're not going to confirm that person. That has never happened before, never. I mean, obviously, people have been defeated, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, Republicans will throw the Bork battle into the face of Democrats. But as I wrote uh, in an op-ed for the Times the other day, that's a completely inapposite um, example because, of course, Robert Bork got a week-long hearing and a full vote on the floor. He happened to be defeated because a majority of the Senate, including I think it was six Republicans at that time, um, decided that he was not the appropriate nominee for the swing vacancy on the court at that moment. But they didn't shut the door in his face. They gave him a full <coughs> hearing and a chance to say and make his case, uh, you know, to you know, till the cows came home. So um, we've never seen anything like this. Please. Hi, I'm Beth Freeman. I'm a visitor. Just wondered what you make of Judge Thomas's finally asking some questions. Oh, well, you know, I, I, again, I think that was very overdone, actually, everybody's fascination with it. Um, you know, he asked questions in a gun case, and he's a, he's a 
gun person all the way down. And uh, I guess he felt at the end of that argument when the lawyer for the government said as the kind of formula, if there were no further questions, and Justice Thomas said, I have a question. And it was not directly on point to the case at hand, but the case tangentially concerned gun rights, and he made it front and center gun rights. And, um, uh, you know, he felt nobody else was raising the question that he wanted to raise. You know, I think, um, I mean, obviously the Second Amendment looms very large on his horizon. I think uh, real um, deep interest in the Second Amendment was attributed by most people to Justice Scalia because his name was on the Heller case and so on. But actually, it's Clarence Thomas who's been uh, beating that drum much longer and who actually um, put, got the Second Amendment sort of onto the court's agenda back years before the the Heller case. And so I think that's what that was about. And I'm sure we'll see it again when the, you know, when he feels moved to um, make sure that the issues that he really cares about get acknowledged in the, in the courtroom. Oh, please. Yes. <coughs> Linda, I'm, my name is Buzz Weintraub. I'm a lawyer and an amateur court watcher. I, I'd just like you, if you'd comment on this. My observation is that the, the cases get to the court are not primarily cases of law. I mean, when, when they get to the Supreme Court, politics is inevitably involved. There are value judgments. This just is not simply an appellate, final appellate court. And I think that, uh, that the, just following, I think the lack of politicians on the court has really hurt for that exact reason. And I think, I think it was Nixon who really started the trend of saying, hey, you know, we've got to pay attention to this court, and we've got to get judges on the court. And, and I think, anyway, I just throw that out, but I, uh, as an observation. That, uh, yeah, no, I think that's a fair observation. I mean, the Supreme Court is it's really unusual. It has almost complete control over its docket. So it has the ability to set the country's legal agenda. It does set the country's legal agenda by what it chooses to, the disputes that it identifies as those that it chooses to engage in. And uh, it does come down to, to judgment. Uh, for instance, you know, most of their docket is statutory, and most of the statutory cases they take are those that have led to um, opposite rulings among the federal circuits. So, you know, perfectly good, well-intentioned federal court of appeals judges have come out in opposite direction. So, you know, what do you do? You pick some kind of rule to apply, you look at legislative history, or you don't look at legislative history, or you look at purpose and effect, or you don't look at purpose and effect, and these are judgment calls. So, um, you know, they're not, they're not formulaic, and uh, politicians Good politicians are identified as exercising good judgment. Of course, good judges are identified good judgment. So, you know, I think I think a diversity of um, characteristics on the Supreme Court is very helpful because different points of view might, in a kind of a crowdsourcing way, um, you know, maybe lead to better outcomes. Yeah, please, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, my, uh, 
I've learned that the Supreme Court makes their decisions very soon after they accept the court, or they accept the case, and that most of the time between the time it's announced, the decision is announced and it's accepted is based on the writing of, of briefs and things. So how does the Supreme Court keep the lid on these things so the rumors don't get out about which way they're going? You mean how do they prevent leaks? Yeah. What, what do you mean by how do they keep the lid on? Affordable care. Yeah. And also, I think same-sex same marriage. Uh, if people were sitting, the, the two outs in the ninth inning, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? They, they, my understanding is that they had decided this months ago, and it was just a question of how it, the briefs were going to come out of it. Am I wrong? Well, yes, you are wrong. Um, <laughs> so, what so what happens is the court grants a case, and then that triggers a briefing schedule. So uh, each side has a certain number of days, weeks, months to file their briefs. Then the court schedules argument. And then the week they argue the case, they go into a private conference and they take a straw vote on the basis of which somebody's assigned to write the opinion. But it's not going to be an opinion for the court unless five people sign it. And it's not a done deal till it's done. So the delay. So I think the, uh, the same-sex marriage case was argued, I think, in March and was decided at the end of June. So I think in all that time, uh, Justice Kennedy was writing his majority opinion, and then he circulates it to see if anybody is dissenting or anybody's concurring. And, Justice, and we, there were four written dissents in that, opinion, in, in that case by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, and they're all writing their opinions and everybody's circulating all around the court, along with every other case that was argued that spring that's circulating all around the court. So um, it's a process, and the process finishes when five people are satisfied enough that they're going to put their names on it. So, uh, you know, that's, that's just the way it works. Joanna, please. I'm Joanna Dunaway. I'm a Joan Shornstein fellow also. Um, I'm just curious about, we talked about it a little bit, but I wondered if you had any thoughts about the discussions inside the parties in Congress about sort of, I guess, just their long-term view of the court. And it seems like the Republicans have kind of painted themselves into a corner here with the um, sort of internal division over whether they approve of Trump. And it seems like they must be thinking, about what do we, you know, what's worse if, if let's say Hillary wins and she gets a nominate, or Trump wins, or this Obama, you know, nomination. I mean, do, does any of that discussion sort of involve what's healthiest for the court or the institutional integrity of the court, or? Do you well, seeming, seemingly not, but, um, you know, I'm not on the Hill, so I never like to pretend to know more than I know, so I don't know the internal discussions. What I do know is what I read on page one of this morning's New York Times, which was a poll that said that a huge majority of uh, Republicans uh, are embarrassed by the behavior of their party. So it seems to me that's a real wake-up sign to, um, you know, to the Mitch McConnell faction and the, you know, the we're not even going to meet with Chief Judge Garland faction. Um, I think that's going to prove to be a pretty hard sell, but uh, I think they're dealing from a combination of panic and self-interest. Um, you know, you can almost feel sorry for them, except it's so serious. 
So beyond that, I really, I, I don't know what the conversations are. Hi, Christine Cosmini, I uh, work for the university, um, I cover the Kennedy School. Um, I've heard justices say that the public's perception that everything is always a 5-4 is overblown and that the vast majority of the cases are decided with a, a, a sizable majority, that we, we perceive it as being much more tense and political there than it is. I'm wondering, what's your sense of how do the justices see the court themselves? Do they see themselves as political? Do they see um, them as um, acting out uh, desires from various legislative, you know, so Republicans want um, Thomas and Scalia to, to do this, and so let's bring this case forward and have them sort of push our agenda forward. Do they see themselves as being tools of that, or totally separate, or and, and not in the, the, the ditch of politics? Or? Yeah, no, I do not think they see themselves as politicians. I think they would vigorously uh, refute that. Um, you know, I think they see themselves acting as judges and calling the shots as they see them as as judges. You know, now there's a whole kind of school of cultural cognition that would seek to understand how uh, two people looking at the same event or two people, uh, you know, handed the same set of materials to read will come out with opposite views just based on their hard wiring and how they think the world works or how they think the law works or how they think Congress works or, or whatever. But um, I'm certainly willing to assume, I mean, I fully believe that um, federal judges think they're acting as, as judges and for you know, as you point out, I mean, uh, the five to fours are a minority of cases that the court handles. Between, usually runs about 25% are, are that closely divided. Um, you know, and most of the time they're doing rather unexciting judicial work, rather standard judicial work of statutory interpretation, applying long-held principles to new to new situations, and you know that's kind of basic judges' work. Uh, Richard Carey, a famous leadership fellow. I mean, I was like you, completely flabbergasted about the, uh, the adding of the constitutional enforcement on the immigration bill. Um, and doesn't it take five justices to add that question to the case, and therefore doesn't that speak volumes about Justice <coughs> Roberts and his? desire to call balls and strikes and even to beat a dead horse to forget his opinions in Citizens United or Heller, I mean, to add a gratuitous question like that, which for what possible remedy, by the time the case was decided and handed down, you decided, assuming five justices on side, that the president has violated his duty to enforce the Constitution, then what? I mean, what? I mean, doesn't that just speak about his underlying uh, you know, naked political uh, aims on, on a lot of these cases before the court? Actually, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe it takes only four votes <laughs> to add a question on, on a grant of cert. It takes only four votes to grant cert. And I think those who are uh, in the process of granting the case can reshape the questions presented in any way they see fit. So I don't actually think it's, it's not in the nature of a motion. So if something is in the nature of a motion, like a stay, granting a stay, we know that takes five. Or granting rehearing, that takes five. But 
changing the questions presented, I actually just think it takes four. Please. Yeah, no, oral arguments are not just for show, emphatically not. Um, they don't change minds all that often. That is to say, they don't change from affirm to reverse. But they can shape what the ultimate opinion emphasizes, um, what choices the court makes out of the array of different ways that a case can be presented. Um, you know, because the, what the justices use, so the justices use oral argument for two basic things. One is to make sure they understand what are the implications of the party's arguments. So, because they know they're not just resolving a particular dispute. That's not what the Supreme Court is for. They're making law, making precedent for future disputes in that same part of the forest. And so, you know, they're saying to the lawyers who are arguing, okay, if we buy what you're selling, uh, what's the next thing that's going to come along and what are we buying into so they they want to make sure they understand the full dimension that's one thing the other thing they use the argument for is um <coughs> to get their points across and make sure that their colleagues on the other end of the bench um hear them and they can use the lawyer sometimes you know it looks like kind of a bank shot on a pool table they bounce the questions off the lawyer really addressing somebody down on the other side of the bench. And the reason is the norm of the court is, and many, I think most appellate courts are like this, they don't discuss the case among themselves until they go on the bench. So the norm is, um, at least the ideal is, we all take the bench with an open mind, and our mind is open to the arguments that are going to be presented to us. And it's really the one time in the decisional process, which, as I said in answer to the earlier question, can take you know many months, where they're all focusing on the same thing for one solid hour. And so uh, it's just an, a very intense time, and they take it very seriously, and they're very well prepared for it. You know, it's not like if you go to a congressional hearing, uh, you know, many times the members of Congress don't know enough to ask the follow-up question and it's presented to them on a scrap of paper by their aide who's hovering behind them. The justices are up there just alone, and they've read the briefs, and they've thought about the case, and, you know, it's, it's an interactive, uh, very fascinating um, experience. So um, it's not just for show. Please. Hi, Sally Hodgson. I'm a visitor. Um, I know we're talking about the post-Scalia era, but that's presumably influenced by Justice Scalia. And I wanted to get any thoughts you have about what kind of influence he may have in a more long-term sense over jurisprudence, over the Supreme Court, over the political system. Get a kind of sense of how that complex legacy would play out. I think um, he degraded the discourse of the court, frankly. I think his um, snarky uh, dissenting opinions were uh, 
ill-advised and sort of, uh, you know, freed, enabled snarkiness in others. So that's one kind of influence. Um, I think his, quote, originalist understanding of constitutional interpretation goes nowhere. Um, that died with him, actually. It never got anything close to majority support on the Supreme Court. Chief Justice Roberts is not a self-described originalist. Um, neither is Justice Alito. Uh, you know, he had some influence in his very eccentric uh, refusal to look at legislative history to understand what Congress did. Um, and, you know, some people think that he succeeded in scaring his colleagues away from ever citing, invoking legislative history, and, and some lawyers who argue before the court stopped citing legislative history, I think that died with him. Because obviously, uh, if you're interpreting a statute, you want to have some understanding of what the members of Congress thought they were doing. That's just common sense, and I think that, you know, will return full, full force. Um, he doesn't leave much of um, a jurisprudential legacy. Um, I guess his most important opinion was Heller, the Second Amendment case. So, uh, you know, that Heller leaves open many questions. I mean, Heller, by its terms, involved the right to keep a handgun in the home for self-defense. That leaves many questions open about other kinds of weapons and other kinds of situations. We don't know the answers to those. So it's not really clear uh, how far the Heller opinion goes. Um, uh, you know, he had other ventures um, that, uh, you know, maybe commanded five votes for a few minutes and then he would overreach and uh, those didn't last. So, you know, he was a very colorful figure and great at calling attention to himself and kind of a cult figure in certain parts of our society, but um, I don't think he's got a real lasting impact. So other than degrading the discourse? Yeah, well, okay. kind of. I mean, that's a harsh thing to yeah. say, and, you know, I'm sure we'll come create some pushback, but that's, um, that's how I see it. Okay, thank you. Joanna, you can have a second question. Okay. <coughs> um, I was just wondering about, and let me tell you what I'm thinking about first and then ask the question. So people have speculated that um, because women are very different than men in a lot of ways, women tend to be more empathetic in some ways or have a history of being be, not Come history, on. but I know, I know, I know. A tendency towards consensus building, working well in group settings. This sounds like I'm being mean, but I'm, I'm really not. There, there are studies that kind of suggest these things, right? So I'm just wondering, um, I mean, I think I might know your answer because of what you were talking about in the context of talking about the current court. But I'm wondering if you think that, one, if you can detect a sense <coughs> and a change of the deliberations that go on with the, I guess, a change in justice. So we lose Scalia, we get someone else. Is that is the impact of that person on the sort of internal dynamics detectable by someone who studies this, these decisions closely? And if so, do you think that over time, if we have more balance between men and women, we might see sort of the nature of the deliberative process change at all, or is this a potential remedy for some of the, the polarization? I know we have a lot of women on the court now relative to the past, but um, 
you know, it's such a narrow slice in time. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, my answer is no. Um, not only because I kind of resist the gender essentialism, you know, but aside from that, um, the court doesn't really operate with personal deliberation. They really don't. Um, and that's part of, you know, maybe I should have said that in answer to the question earlier about, uh, you know, do they all get along and are they friends? Um, the court really, the justices really deal with each other basically on paper. And I mean paper, I don't even mean email. Um, <laughs> by circulating drafts and making requests to amend your opinion in, in writing. And their feeling is, at least as some justices have, I've heard them say, um, you know, kind of talk is cheap, but talk is um, imprecise. And when you're dealing with nuance and details, you want to see it like in writing. So uh, their conference, I mean, they meet in conference twice a week when, when they're on the bench, but those are not schmooze fests. They're very scripted. Um, so no, I really don't. And also, when you look at the lower courts, for instance, um, the uh, abortion clinic case from Texas that was argued to the court earlier this month, the judges who have been um, uh, enabling the state of Texas to impose these uh, unjustified, uh, unscientifically sound uh, restrictions that are closing more than half the abortion clinics in Texas, those are women. Those are women. So, um, you know, I, I actually don't don't think you can draw any kind of line between uh, gender balance on a court and, and the outcomes. So can I, let me follow that. I, this is about a certain kind of essentialism, maybe, possibly gender. So I have a sense that the Republicans play the nomination game much better than the Democrats. So um, they tend to like younger appointees. Uh, they stay around a lot longer. Uh, they seem to kind of be, have a better fix ideologically on where these people are going to locate themselves on the court, which is also works to their advantage. And uh, I didn't think in this instance that Obama played the hand that McConnell gave him, that in some ways um, he didn't take McConnell at his word that this is not going to happen. Right, and so to me, you play this game differently if it's not going to happen than if you think it might happen, right? And that in an election year, a different kind of appointee or nominee than the one that he came up with uh, struck me to would have been a better choice. Uh, a woman or a minority where, in fact, you could get some faction of the electorate kind of upset that this person is not being given even a hearing. And uh, now you, you can either disagree with the particular or the generalization that the Republicans somehow, somehow play this game a little better than the Democrats. I don't know what your sense is. Uh, I have a couple reactions. One, I actually don't agree with you on the strategic brilliance of this nomination. I think the president had to go into it um, on the working assumption that his nominee was going to get through, even if all the evidence might seem to the contrary. In other words, to send up a kind of, um, to, to play to the base uh, and send somebody up who really had no chance, I think 
would have been exciting, but not ultimately strategic. I think the brilliance of this nomination, uh, and I'm speaking of someone who's known and admired Merrick Garland for many, many years, but even that aside, is that it's the nomination that's got to make the Republicans squirm. You're not even going to open the door to this guy who you seem to admire so much just a month ago? I mean, what gives with this? So I just think it was a smarter uh, nomination. But as to whether the Republicans have been better and more strategic, well, so I have a book coming out in June <laughs> um, about the Burger Court. And you mentioned Richard, that Richard Nixon was the first president that really seemed to care about um, ideology. Yes, I mean, he ran against uh, the Warren Court uh, very successfully. Um, so uh, this book I have coming out is called uh, The Burger Court and the Rise of the Judicial Right. And it's exactly about that. And of course, we're in the same potential inflection point um, going into 2017 and the next presidential administration. But, uh, but that aside, but of course, one thing that has bedeviled um, the Republicans is that a number of their court appointees have um, drifted off message. Uh, during the uh, during their tenure, right, and that has driven the Republicans crazy. You know the the call, um, you know, not too many years ago was no more suitors, <laughs> because they you know they were told they were they were hitting a home run with David Souter. This was in the first Bush administration, and David Souter ended up um, <coughs> as you know one of the most liberal justices on the court. So so what they've done. Uh, more recently, I, th I think with the Roberts and the Alito nominations, is look at the political science literature. That's very interesting. That's come out in recent years, looking at uh, who are the justices who who drift, uh, drift left, and who are not. And the ones who are not are those who've really cut their eye teeth inside the Beltway, have had executive branch experience, have had. Um, you know, have worked in the Justice Department, have worked in the White House Counsel's Office, whatever, are known players and paid their dues. Not people from the heartland, not a Sandra Day O'Connor, not a Harry Blackman, who at midlife, you know, and, and have this disruptive personal experience of ending up on the Supreme Court. And guess what? Life looks a little different, maybe, than it did before. So it's a really interesting dynamic, but you're quite right. It's going on for a long time. Sure, please. Uh, the question is not with specifically with the current court or that of one part that might relate to it, but how cloistered should the judges be? Should they be taking trips and addressing groups? Uh, well, I think there was even some discussion about paid trips to, to groups that have points of view, or should they really just cloister themselves? And also, should they be talking to senators and congressmen and even presidents during their while they're sitting as judges? Well, you, you, you put up a bunch of different situations. So they don't take paid trips. No federal judge is allowed to take a paid trip. Uh, should they be taking trips? Yeah, actually, I mean, personally, I think they should be taking trips. I think, I mean, they're cloistered enough by the, their, um, uh, you know, status, their elite rank in Washington society and stuff. And if they get out in the heartland or go out and, you know, shoot a few antelope or something. I mean, it doesn't bother me um, at all. Uh, should they be talking to the president and members of Congress? Um, I'm not aware that they do. 
actually, maybe you are. Um, you know, they testify before Congress twice a year to the appropriation subcommittees of the House and Senate. Um, that's public. You can see it on C-SPAN. Um, you know, I mean, they're all grown up, and, and I think, um, you know, there are groups out there that are always sort of uh, calling into question the ethics of Supreme Court justices. I think that's, that's a non-starter as far as I'm concerned. Nice. Well, a lot of people feel that one vote in the court elected George Bush. Did the court ever get involved so into an election process before? And was there any way the court could avoid getting so involved in that election? You're talking about Bush against Gore? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, had anything like that ever happened before? No. Um, Will it ever happen again? Let's hope not. I mean, I've analogized it to a bad hair day. It was just one of those things that happened. Uh, could they have avoided it? Yes. And, uh, you know, after, uh, after the 2000 election, a consortium of media groups spent, I think, more than a million dollars uh, recounting the ballots uh, that Bush against Gore had enabled to be recounted and turned out that Bush would have won. Uh, so, you know, it was certainly a galvanizing event that left, let's say, half the population pretty happy because half the people voted for Bush. Um, you know, the other half, surprisingly, at least according to the kind of longitudinal study of public attitudes toward the court, didn't change their attitude too much. Um, so let's hope we don't live through something like that again, right? Um. Right now, every member of the court is either Jewish or Catholic and received a law degree from Harvard or Yale. Yeah. And Merrick Garland's nomination, should he join the court, would not change that dynamic. Correct. Do you, what impact does that have on the court? Do you think that's a problem? Do you think we should be nominating <coughs> greater diversity of judges to the court? Yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, I don't think it's a problem in that those backgrounds don't, certainly don't disable people from being good justices um, at all. Um, you know, but I think, I, I think it's good to have a mix of backgrounds. It's a big country with many, I mean, it's just very interesting. So in the not too distant past, um, it was, for instance, considered essential to have, there was a Southern seat on the court. And you could say Clarence Thomas fills the Southern seat because he's from Georgia, but really he was a Washington bureaucrat at the time he was nominated, so I, I don't count him. Um, you know, Lewis Powell was the last person to hold a Southern seat. Uh, and that fell away, I think, because at least we live under the illusion that sectionalism of the country is not such a salient feature. And, of course, um, the fact that nobody's really made much to do over the disappearance of Protestants on the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, this is kind of remarkable, really. I mean, in recent history, um, you know, and now we take it for granted there's going to be women on the court. We certainly expect the court's going to look more like, quote, more like America. Um, but, you know, what we expect of the court, I think it's to some degree reflects what we expect out of our kind of cultural and political life uh, generally. Um, so it is a little strange, the all well, Harvard and Yale. Um, yeah. 
what can I tell you, as someone who has degrees from both institutions. <laughs> so we're getting kind of, we probably have time for kind of one last response. So um, could you put your hat on and tell us what you think might bring about some significant change in the court or even if you kind of had a wish list and we don't talk much about the process. You know, we talk about the presidential selection process a lot and how we should adjust the primaries or adjust this or adjust that. Um, we don't talk much about that around the judicial process. Um, there's not, nothing fixed about the nine on the court. You know, I mean, if you want more diversity and if you want to get away from one judge, one justice decisions, if you had like 15, I mean, there are, there are things that one could think about that would change, at least in part, kind of the dynamics of the court. So if you're in the prescription business, kind of where, where would you take things? Well, maybe not prescription, but description. You know, there's a debate now about term limits. And would term limits sort of lower the temperature? Because the proposal that a group of law professors made maybe 10 years ago and was regarded as sort of a fantasy, but it has gotten a little more traction. So if you had 18-year term limits, that would mean, uh, once it was fully rotated in, that every president would be guaranteed two appointments in a four-year term. So that the randomness now, you know, you better grab that one and put all your eggs in that basket because you might not have another one, and Jimmy Carter had none, right? right? And Richard Nixon had four. Um, you know, I mean, that might do something. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I encourage people to talk about it and think about it because I think it's interesting. It might have bad effects. I mean, I don't know. Um, but you're quite right that the way things are in this country is not the way they necessarily have to be or the way that other very estimable legal systems have chosen for themselves. So. Um, we do seem to need some good ideas. Yeah. Linda Greenhouse, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.